0: From the campus of Harvard Medical School, this is Think Research, a podcast devoted to the stories behind clinical research. I'm Abby, your host. Think Research is brought to you by Harvard Catalyst, Harvard University's Clinical and Translational Science Center, and by NCATS, the National Center for Advancing Translational Sciences. What do athletics, body shape, music, and dancing have to do with the food choices we make? Join us as we talk with Jordan Nguyen about her research that encompasses early food environments, breastfeeding, and her current working thesis about how parents influence food decisions in their children. Jordan is currently a doctoral student in the Department of Nutrition at the Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health. Hi, Jordan. Welcome to the show. Thanks for joining us today. Thanks for
1: having me. I'm really excited. So we're just going to kind of jump right
0: in and talk a little bit about you and then some of your research and kind of what's happening in your life now. So if you could start, could you just tell us a bit about yourself?
1: I'm Jordan Nguyen. Uh, I am originally from Michigan, born in Detroit, graduated from Ann Arbor Public Schools, where I was a student athlete and musician. Uh, my parents were really into making sure that my siblings and I were very well-rounded. Uh, I'm the youngest child, so had lots of role models ahead of me, so my schedule was always very, very busy. And then for undergrad, I went all the way across the street (laughs) from my high school to the University of Michigan, where I studied, I actually double majored in Spanish and international studies. My concentration was global health and environment. I was part of the residential college, shout out to the RC. Uh, That was a really important era and tool in my life, especially at that stage, I was so lost (laughs) in, in my undergraduate years, as I think most people are. I had no idea what I wanted to do. I, I knew I did not want to go to med school, but I was really interested in health. So I took on a couple different opportunities, internships, doing research that were health related. And I found out I was really interested in that. So after I finished undergrad, I took a year to explore what my non-med school options were and I ended up applying to schools of public health. So I went back to University of Michigan for my masters in public health and health education and health behavior. After that I Stayed at the university and worked in my department on a project called the Black Women's Wellness Project, which is a weight management clinical trial that focuses on Black women and particularly those who are the caregivers of young children. And I really enjoyed seeing what research looked like in practice. And my mentor noticed that I was really interested in research and asking the questions, and he recommended that I keep going. Um, and that's how I ended up working on my PhD.
0: There was a lot in there. Uh, you know, you mentioned that you were a student athlete and musician. You talked about knowing you didn't want to go to med school, but you wanted to do something in the health space. If you could, if you wouldn't mind, talk to us a little bit more about your student athlete career and time. What, what kind of musician are you? What do you play? Or is it your vocal cords? <laughs>
1: I come from a very musical family. You know, I grew up in a Black Pentecostal church, the Church of God in Christ, so music is very important as part of that culture, especially in Detroit. We've got Motown, and we've got the greatest gospel artists of history. So you know it was I was always surrounded by it. my grandmother played piano. My dad sings and plays the piano a little bit. <laughs> my dad always wanted us to play and have formal training on instruments so I started off on the violin absolutely hated it it was like too high pitched for me so I get to middle school and the orchestra director is like we have this instrument it's called a bass would anyone like to try it and then my hand shoots up just I was so eager I was like yes please send me to the other end of the spectrum for strings let's go so of course I call my dad, I'm like, hey dad, can you bring the van when you pick me up today? And he was like, I mean, okay. And I would like walk out of school with this giant bass. We did not have the room for it in our house, but I loved it and so it stayed. <laughs> so I played the double bass. <laughs> and on top of that, I do sing. And since then I have picked up a couple of other mostly string instruments. I play a little bit of the piano, not super well, but well enough to teach. Preschoolers, their first introductory, uh, this is how a piano works, lessons um, before they go off to fully trained <laughs> pianists. <laughs> for, you know, it's a good intermediate step, especially for parents who are like, I don't know if my kid's going to stick with this. So, music is something that I've always enjoyed. It keeps me grounded, but I knew I didn't want to study that formally because I like, didn't want it to be a stressful thing for me. I always wanted it to be just like a nice release. So after I did all of the like music theory and technical training courses all through high school, I was like, I think we're going to just leave it here. So I play in community ensembles just to stay connected. But that's, that's that. And then I played pretty much if the sport existed in my city, I probably played it at some point. My dad was very adamant that we try all things and my mom also was really interested in us getting exposed to things that you know most kids don't have access to if it was available so you know that's of course by grinding and archery all the way to traditional like basketball soccer i love baseball um and softball so i played that for quite a while but the sport that i i guess i uh, focused on was be track and field so i pole vaulted all through high school and I threw shot put and discus ran the 200 meters you know well, I was supposed to run 400 meters, but I always measled my way out of that one today. I absolutely hate that. <laughs> but yeah, so it's sprinted and, and pole vaulted for um, all of high school. Well, now talk to us a little
0: bit more about even how some of your background, especially I know we talked about your athleticism and being a dancer, which you didn't mm-hmm. mention. You didn't even mention. I, your- know,
1: I didn't mention that. It, it's one of those things. I did it for so long that I just kind of... It's just part
0: of who you are.
1: (laughs) Well, it's funny because I don't even consider myself a dancer anymore, but I did ballet for 12
0: years. I would say that makes you a dancer.
1: But But I started so young that those 12 years kind of didn't count, you know? Mm -hmm. Like, it was more like seven, and it was, you know, at the YMCA, which I had really great ballet instructors, but, like, I don't remember anything. My body definitely doesn't remember (laughs) most of it. (laughs) But I guess... To tie it into my research, one thing I learned from sports, especially pole vaulting and from dance, is that you have to pay attention to your body a lot for performance. And I always found it intriguing to hear how some parents chose to comment on their child's body in response to their athletic performance. And so for dance especially for ballet it's very aesthetic heavy your body is supposed to look a certain way and in order to achieve that look some parents will go to great lengths to make sure that their child is h- hitting those marks and that goes like not just from having a particular body shape as far as like what your hips look like and your waist looks like but also to what your body can do over stretching put forcing turnouts things like that like some parents are really into it <laughs> my parents like I said, wanted me to have the experience and they wanted me to enjoy being active. So I didn't hear any comments from my parents directly about my body as it pertained to my athleticism ever. But I noticed it from other people's parents and I was like, oh, that's so strange. I mean, I think I was maybe in fourth grade. We were doing a recital. This was maybe a contemporary dance class. We were doing a recital to Christine Aguilar's Genie in a Bottle.
0: Ah, a classic. I know.
1: It was my first solo. I got selected to be the genie. i was very excited, like extremely excited. I've never gotten a solo before. And in my excitement, I overhear this conversation with one of the other girls in my class and her mom. And her mom really thought she was going to get the solo. And her mom said, well, I don't know if this has anything to do with why you didn't get it, but maybe we need to have you do more salads this week or less junk food because your your body didn't or something she had some comment about like the she didn't get the solo because her diet had been off is, is essentially what i got out of it and i was like what a weird thing to say and then of course i went back to celebrating the fact that i got this solo and you know it was one of those it's weird what you remember right i didn't think about that instance until like years 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 later mm-hmm. and i was pole vaulting One of my teammates was mentioning that she's very particular about her diet so that she doesn't have to be concerned about weigh ins for meats. And she's like, My weight never fluctuates more than two pounds. And I'm like, I literally don't pay attention to that. And my solution to the fact that my weight fluctuated was to train on two different size poles. The pole, you can't compete on a pole that's underweight because it's dangerous. Um, And so I was like, Okay, I'll learn how to vault on a I think at the time it was a 130 pull and a 140 pull, or whatever the two. It was a 10 10 pound difference. Because I would just, I don't know, I never knew it was going to weigh for from one week to the next. And I was like, well, that's so interesting that her strategy is to manage her weight instead of my strategy was to train. She used two different tools, and and I, it brought me back to that little girl in my dance class. However old you are in the fourth grade, I was like, well, that's so interesting. I was like it never crossed my mind to like change what I'm eating to make sure that I'm weighing a certain thing or looking a certain way for my athletic performance. And then all of that went out of the window. I didn't think about it again until I was doing my research. The first set of research I did was in the Dominican Republic on breastfeeding versus formula feeding, comparing a rural neighborhood to a semi-urban neighborhood. And one of the things that kept popping up was moms kind of do what they think is best for their child and also what they think is normal for women in their area. And that's when it came up again of manipulating diet so that bodies look a certain way. And I was like, oh, like, (laughs) but I don't know how I was so shielded from this type of perception. The early 2000s was like diet, fat, heavy. And so I really don't know how I was so oblivious to the fact that that was normal. I mean, good for you. What a healthy way to live life. Yeah. And I mean, I don't want to like say that like my body image was totally perfect. I definitely received more than my fair share of scrutiny for the way my body looked. But as far as what I had internalized and, like, what actions I needed to take to combat that stigma or stereotyping or biases, like, it never connected for me to change what I was eating. Like, for me, food was, like, you should enjoy food, it should taste good, and it should be healthy. Like, of course, I thought food should be healthy, but it literally never equated to me that, like, you do this to make minor or very, like, structured changes to your body shape. I could understand at that age, like, okay, maybe if you needed to do a significant weight change of like 50 pounds, I could understand how changing your diet would help with that. Like that I understood, but like I could not understand why we would be paying attention to two pounds. It's really interesting. And, and you know, after my experience in the Dominican Republic, and I'm working with infants at this point. So I was surprised <laughs> that we were paying attention to weight changes for infants. And I was more surprised that, as part of my master's internship, I went to Santiago, Chile, and did research at the University of Chile's um, Institute for Nutrition and Food Technology, working again with moms and infants. And I was asking about decisions to breastfeed versus using formula, and then the duration of doing whichever one before introducing solid foods, and the cohort of women that we were working with were part of a larger study that was looking at infant obesity, which was a fascinating concept to me. I was like, I didn't know infants could be obese. Like, you haven't lived long enough. Like, I just, what it, what's all this about? Yeah. And it was more about, I think the title of that project was misleading, but really just trying to understand growth trajectory the differences between infants that are breastfed versus formula fed and what the behaviors around those different types of feedings might, how that might impact. Growth trajectory throughout childhood into adolescence. Right. So it was less about the infants being obese in that and more about the, the changes in the body and how you've trained your body to understand the hunger and satiety and all that from an early age. Now that might be related to obesity in childhood, adolescence, adulthood. But the same thing kept coming up. Moms really wanted to do what they thought was best for their kids, but also what they thought was normal. And a lot of people were preoccupied about how other people would perceive their mothering. So they wanted their children to look like what the product of good mothering was. And I was mm. like, oh, this is so interesting. When I was working with the Black Women's Wellness Project, these themes came up, and we actually had a whole session part of that intervention dedicated to body image for Black women and what it looks like to have little representation, no representation of in the media for what Black beauty and excellence looks like, for what healthy Black bodies look like, for what the sacrifices that may happen to fulfilling your own standard of beauty when you are in a caregiving position, things like that. And so that resurfaced the same things that keep coming up over my mom wants to do what's best for their kids. They want to do what's normal, but also there are all these other factors from society that are influencing these decisions. And so I was like, well, this is so fascinating.
0: Yeah.
1: <laughs> like, what's, what's happening here? Yeah. Um, so that's kind of how I got to the body image space. Just having these memories back to my childhood, my adolescence, young adulthood about how body image is an important Contributor to decisions when it comes to feeding yourself, feeding your children. I was like, let me take a closer, more explicit look at this to see if there's any data you know, that can shine a light on what's happening here. So that's what I worked on now.
0: Absolutely, that is incredible in so many different mm-hmm. ways. It makes me think of a lot of different things as you're talking. I think of. Even what does normal mean? That is the question. <laughs> and like culturally, you know, I'm from Georgia and now live in Massachusetts. And even the cultures of what your body can look like in these two different states, I have found to be profoundly, so, There's just so <laughs> different.
1: So yep. different.
0: And I've lived in Massachusetts for, you know, 20 plus years at this point and it's still I find it so fascinating. I'm like, wow, this is a different body than I understood growing mm-hmm. up and that was, you know, the normal that I understood. So I I'm like so interested and
1: fascinated by your work. Yeah. It's it's fascinating and like you said from one state to the next it can be so different. I grew up in Michigan, which is the Midwest. So in some respects there there are some certain types of bodies that are acceptable there that are not acceptable in the New England East Coast. And I don't really understand why other than there must be some historical roots in the Midwest is very rural. Um, so I think having a larger than stick thin body was acceptable, is acceptable in a lot of spaces because that was normal, you've worked the land, so your bodies are very strong, very muscular. We eat a lot of dairy because that's where you get a lot of protein. From. Like So historically, I think there's a little bit of forgiveness for some of that, but with media and television and all of that, there's also this almost universal shift where what used to be a normal is no longer desirable. So if you look like how everybody else looks, it's not bad, but it's not what we're striving for. And therefore you need to work harder, right? And it's it's so interesting, but out here, I feel like one, I became much more aware of what my body looked like when I moved here, because it's just, it's more prevalent. I think there are more messages about what bodies look like than even in Michigan. I thought it was kind of a lot in Michigan. And so I, I'm like, man, of kind of missed that. but. You know, my my dad is from Alabama and my mom's family is from Louisiana. So I grew up in a very Southern household in the North. (laughs) So I was already receiving very conflicting messages between my home environment and my school about what my body was supposed to look like. And I was a very thin child. I was very tall, but I was muscular. And so for my family, I would be praised for having hips. Or I'd be praised for having some meat on my bones, whereas some of my cousins, they didn't get any meat on their bones until they hit puberty, you know. But then at school or at some dance in particular, you know, I was chubby or which the word chubby drives me crazy because what does that even mean? (laughs) And like, what does it mean to who's the speaker? So I grew up thinking my body was one way. And then you go and look at photos and you're like, wait, what? Like I could talk about body image for like 10 hours. It it blows my mind because it's so subjective. And it's weird because like, I can't think of any instance where having conversation about someone's body is positive. The whole existence of body image feels very damaging, but like you can't, it's not going anywhere. So like, one of the things I'm interested in is, like, how do we make it a little bit better? I don't, <laughs> I don't <laughs> figure that out. Right. A million questions. <laughs> but it's it's so strange, you know, from one city to the next, what the expectations were, were so different. And then you could get a pass for what your body looked like if you had certain talents or gifts. Because I actively participated in sports, me being muscular was, like, good. But if I happen to be muscular, but I wasn't like an avid athlete, that someone would be like, why do you so masculine? You know, like I never figured out what the rules are, why they exist, who they apply to. But they, they're they very real and very tangible. And I, everybody I've ever talked to about body image is like, yeah, yeah, that's, that's so true. And I'm like, OK, so we all know that like something really messed up is happening here. And we don't know how to stop it or change it because it's so ingrained and there's just like so many different conflicting cultures and opinions that we all live in.
0: I know we started to talk about your research, but if you want to just state and talk about exactly what you're researching and then talk to us about how how you want it to be used and thought of.
1: Yeah. So my research explicitly is on trying to see if there are any patterns for body image in adolescents that are related to the way their parents choose to feed them or the parenting that they have around food. So, for example, if a parent is really strict about what or when their children eat, is that connected with certain types of body image? thoughts, internalization, or any of the outcomes that can happen from having a negative body image or a positive body image. So for negative body image, maybe that's a type of disordered eating. And then I'm also interested in looking at how body image in mothers in particular might influence the way they choose to feed their child. So if I have a particular image of myself, does that change or influence the way I am choosing to parent my children when it comes to food so if i feel my body is inadequate or my body is the standard or my body is good enough but maybe not the standard does that change how i choose to talk about food or uh, what which foods i choose to present to my child so that those are the themes that i'm researching and people always ask like this is super interesting but like what do we what do we do with this um and honestly my my goal is to really understand if there are any types of patterns in body image for ourselves that influence eating behaviors or parenting around food behaviors, we already know how certain parenting food parenting behaviors and how eating behaviors relate to individual health long-term, the way you eat and how that might affect your propensity for chronic diseases and things like that. So if we can figure out, well, if a parent is doing this behavior that leads to this type of eating pattern, which is connected to this type of emotional wellness, then we might be able to push in clinical spaces or in social spaces for folks to be more mindful about the messages they put out about health. So this feels a little convoluted sometimes when I say it, but when you walk into a doctor's office, you see images about healthy eating. Oftentimes, those images show people who are thin and who appear to be athletic. So there is a certain standard image or body ideal that represents health and healthy eating. And that's from children, adolescents, adults, all you see it across the all older adults, the full age spectrum. When you go into a clinical setting and there's any messaging about diet, there's usually one image that represents how you know you're eating a healthy diet, right? Uh, it often excludes people of color it often excludes men for i don't know what reason <laughs> like we just ignore the fact that men exist when it comes to diet sometimes so if we can figure out like okay th- there are certain messages about body image that are we are connecting with food that are leading to adverse health outcomes or desirable health outcomes maybe we can lean into these desirable outcomes or maybe we can figure out how to prevent these adverse health outcomes we're constantly talking to people about their weight because we assume that people in larger bodies are not eating healthily and you're telling them you need a better diet without ever, one, thinking about what their diet actually is, if you're not going to assess it, two, thinking about how do they feel when they eat, what pressure comes with making food choices. So maybe their diet is perfect, but it comes with an emotional distressors because their plate is being highly restricted or they feel guilty every time they eat something that's not what's supposed to be, in air quotes, on their plate. So that's creating stress, and that might be leading to other issues that might be causing, you know, retention of excess weight because you're stressed. So if we can figure out what other things that are not just the calories in, calories out, or nutrients in, waste out type of mentality, we might be able to get some leverage when it comes to communication. Or how do we remove weight stigma, weight bias from our clinical messages about healthy diet, about what healthy bodies look like, how healthy bodies are fueled, how bodies who are in need of health should be fueled. Mm -hmm. I'm really interested in seeing if we can take this very social phenomenon and connect it back to health. Maybe that'll be inspiring to folks in policy, or even just like changing our social norms about how do we start conversations with parents about their children's health in a way that is more cognizant to the fact that children have feelings and emotions, and we need to be aware of their wellness at all life stages. And parents have feelings and emotions, and we need to be aware of their wellness at all stages. So that's kind of why, in the the so what of why I'm looking into something feels so so narrow to attack a
0: really big goal. I mean, honestly, I could talk to you for a (laughs) day about this stuff. Um, I just think there's so much packed into the research you're doing and even to your point that, you know, you feel like it's a narrow thing to then impact a much, much larger thing that has so much influence, dare I say, a chokehold over a lot (laughs) of people's different areas of people's lives. I mean, that's true. I mean,
1: everybody has to eat. Yeah. When I think about like a lot of chronic disease prevention things, physical activity, you know, we get a full spectrum of physical activity for lots of reasons. You don't like it versus you like it. You are physically able to do it versus you are physically not able to do it. You live in an environment that has the resources for you to do it. You don't live in an environment that has the resources to do it. So a lot of that is like, maybe you do it, maybe you don't. But everybody has to eat. If you don't eat, you will not be alive for very long. Yeah. Everybody has to eat. And therefore, everybody's making choices about food. And some people are in a space where they can make choices about food solely based on what they enjoy, solely based on what's their cultural norms. And some people are making choices based off of what someone else has told them they should be eating, like children who don't have a lot of autonomy over their food. Food is presented to them. They're not going and buying their own groceries. And now some children do get great experiences where they get to go along with their Guardian to make some of those decisions, but that's pretty rare in most spaces, you know. And then you have folks who are being told what to eat, not because someone is forcing them, but because there are all these social messages that are saying healthy looks like a salad, healthy looks like this portion size, healthy looks like this, without consideration to what their bodies actually need, what is culturally relevant to them, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. food is so interesting to me because literally everybody has to eat and like we talk about it so much and you know we have done such a great job of making something that should be so intuitive so complicated yes i wish i could experience the day where you're just like i'm hungry i will eat we don't get that anymore everything is so scrutinized whether you want it to be or not and whether you people are actually talking about what you're eating or not, you might feel like that. I don't know. I feel like a lot of people had the elementary, middle school, high school experience of walking to a cafeteria with home food and looking around to see if what's in their lunch pail is the same as everyone else's. Does it smell the same? Does it smell too strong? Are there spices in it that people are going to be like, what is that? Or why does it look that way? What does it smell like? And why does it have that funny name? You know, the amount of times my parents would send me to the school with whatever we had for dinner for lunch in a yeah. thermos and you just heat it up and eat it. And people were like, what is that? And I'm like, this is jambalaya. It's really delicious. They're like, Never heard of it. It's probably gross. You know, like, <laughs> Or like there's sausage in that. That's not healthy. Like you can't catch a break, you know? And I think it would be really nice if we could just get to a place where food becomes just second nature we're eating because we're hungry and what i'm choosing to eat makes sense to me because that's what's relevant to my culture to mm. where i am geographically and other people's comments about my food are can i have that recipe full stop you know oh.
0: well thank you so much for joining us today we will have you back we need to know where this <laughs> goes we need to know what, it, what happens.
1: i i need to know where this goes <laughs> It's such a passion project for me and, you know, I feel really fortunate to be able to pursue such a niche interest as part of my career. So, I'm I will definitely be glad to share any and everything that I find out as I can move along.
0: Well, thank you so much again for being here. We appreciate it.
1: Thanks for having me.
0: Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate us on iTunes and help us spread the word about the amazing research taking place across the Harvard community and beyond. We are always looking to connect and collaborate with the research community and would like to hear from you. Please feel free to email us at onlineeducation.catalyst.harvard.edu to inquire about being a guest on the podcast.